I'm Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. Our 100th episode is coming up. We're going to do a special bonus episode for uh, Q&As. You're going to send us some Qs. We're going to give you some As. Uh, We've had a few people write in with some pretty good questions, but we want to get more. So email us at, or me, email me at reapergals at reapertales.com and submit those questions. Don't submit answers, please. It's very confusing if you do. It is super confusing. Or you can you can send them through our social media too. Samantha will grab those and add them to our list. At Reaper Tales Podcast, Instagram, and Facebook. Mm-hmm. You can send me a message or, I mean, shoot, even comment on any of the posts that we make for the episodes. That's fine too. Yep. Yep. I think that's it, right? Um, yeah. Please like, rate, review, subscribe in general. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't do a written, please do all of the things because that just helps other people find us and we greatly appreciate it. I mean, it's surprising, but apparently there are some of you that like listening to us. Yeah, real weird. And what we have to say. So cool. We, we appreciate every one of you. <laughs> there might be more. Who knows? Today, I'm going to tell Samantha and Kelsey, since she's there too, about the death of John Bowie. But before we get started, Samantha, what are we not drinking? (laughs) (laughs) It's a pick your poison, I'm assuming, since we didn't discuss it prior to, and you also changed it last minute and didn't tell me anything else. So sounds like it's true crime. So yeah, just pick your poison. My poison today is water. (laughs) Mine is spray. (laughs) Because I'm desperately trying to avoid getting sick at the moment. And hopefully I won't because it's not the right time of year at all. Fingers crossed. If you do want to drink, I suggest you do. This is going to be a rough one. I haven't covered anything true crime in a while. So like we have a schedule and I'm supposed to stick to that schedule. And I just didn't. So, you know. Who here is surprised? With, a ra- with, a- with some raised hands, who here is surprised? Nobody. Right. Nobody. No, no one. I will say, though, I will make a, a recommendation that was pretty interesting. So I was Christmas shopping for my holiday party. And because that was this past weekend. So last weekend I was Christmas shopping and I went to TJ Maxx and they had these bottles. So like they were glass bottles with a bunch of like dried fruit and some kind of powder at the bottom. And it's a way that you can make your own infused drinks. And so you pour like the spirit of your choice and it has a recommendation and you leave it in there for like three to five hours or overnight, which is what we did. And then it has a strainer, you strain it and then you can mix it with like Sprite or whatever you want to mix it with, because it's basically straight up liquor. And so we did the Moscow Mule one first, because Paul likes those. And we figured we'd try it with vodka. And so we mixed it with ginger ale, and we had some of those last night. It was really good. So if you want to try something different, I mean, it's not going to make a whole, whole lot, but you can make a few drinks out of it. It's pretty interesting. Our, Our washing machine is trying to leave... This universe, if you can hear that in the background. Suddenly heard it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That sounds really good. I would probably do gin. I'm a big gin fan. And a gin and tonic infused with something sounds delicious. Probably would be pretty good. But yeah, there was like, oh, I don't know, eight to ten different ones, different varieties. So, you know, pick whichever one you want to if you want to just try something different. But it was pretty good. I'll just see if there's a TJ Maxx around here. I don't know if there is, but uh, if there is, I'll go check it out. I'm abstaining today. Uh, Council and I went to uh, a brewery yesterday 
to which I knitted in the brewery. Hi, I have a new uh, hyperfixation with knitting. Yeah, I noticed. And he made fun of me, but he... uh, As long as you finish the sweater you started before it fades, that's my fingers crossed for you. I'm real worried that I'm not going to. (laughs) I mean, truly. I've started so many, like, crocheting projects. I've showed them to Kelsey and I was like, I... I'm halfway through a bunch of these and I'm just not going to finish them. Uh, but anyways, so when we got back, we had some beers that we had gotten for the holiday. So we had a, a couple more beers. Well, council has a hangover today. So. Darn. <laughs> That's the worst when you're in your thirties too. Like those hangovers hit differently than they did. Than I remember them hitting in my twenties. It's a lot rougher. It takes all day to recover. Whereas in your 20s, it was like, I just give me another shot or a beer in the morning. I'll be fine. Uh, You can't go go, go all the time. Like uh, hair of the dog too. Oh my God. Mm -mm. So stupid. Oh, that makes me feel like I'm having heartburn right now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, I actually ended up falling asleep in the middle of uh, my beer. So he ended up drinking it. I was tired. Anyways, oh, we hard in our thirties. <laughs> I know I party so hard. I I don't know what to tell you. So, are you ready to hear about the death of John Bowie? I don't know. I guess we'll find out because uh, you got to get started. So I'm going to tell you anyway. Yeah. So the majority of my information came from a book called Losing John by David Parrish, but there is some more information that I gathered from some articles and things like that. There was a really good one from counterpunch.org on this. It was real short, but all of that stuff is going to be in the resources. And I beg of you to please go check those out so that you can make your own decision on this. I had a really hard time figuring out like the best way to tell this story. It's going to be incredibly difficult to tell and not give an opinion on. I'm going to try and lay out the evidence as I know it. So with that said, I need to point out some very important things about this information that I've gathered. Like I said, it is going to be biased, just hands down. It is going to be biased. So I'm letting you know that. The majority of the information I've found on the case is from that book, Losing John by David Parrish. David is not an investigative journalist. He is a technical writer and was a baseball coach for the Bowie brothers. I will go ahead and say that I am the last person who needs to complain about how the information is gathered, as I'm just some chick who works in IT and has the audacity to think I can have a podcast. But I wanted to make it clear where the information is coming from. I know in the past that we've implored our listeners to go to the resources we list in our show notes. And if you've ever considered doing that, on any of our episodes, I want you to do it on this one so that you can come to your own opinion about what happened. So with that said, before we jump in, I want to give a trigger warning on this case. It goes without saying that in any of our true crime episodes, there are more than likely you're going to hear about murder and terrible things. But trigger warning in this one is for some detailed accounts of police brutality. So if, you're, if you can't listen to that, maybe just skip this one. So we need to talk a bit about the town that all of this is happening before we get into the case itself and the death of John. Columbia, Maryland. And I know we're stepping outside of North Carolina, but like I said, I picked this book up like a year ago. I didn't realize it was in Maryland and now I have to cover it. So 
I didn't know anything about this area other than it's like used in TV shows and stuff like that. So bear with me for a bit, but I think the history of this area is important to understand what takes place in this case. Columbia is a planned community. It consists of 10 self-contained villages and has the second largest populace in Maryland after Baltimore. Columbia began with the idea that a city could enhance its residents' quality of life. Developer James Rouse attempted to create a new community in terms of human values rather than economics and engineering. Opened in 1967, Columbia was intended to not only eliminate the inconvenience of then-current subdivision design, but also eliminate racial, religious, and class segregation. Just like with everything in life, that didn't turn out as planned because, say it with me, capitalism, baby. I'm not going to get into the details of this, but Columbia quickly became an area saturated with wealthy individuals. If you want to know more about what happened, go to the show notes, and there is literally a link to the Wikipedia page on Columbia, and you can learn more about it. The idea of the planned community was great, but the execution, not so much. That's never happened before. No, never. There's an article that I found on Counterpunch written by Ron Jacobs that summarizes the effects on an area such as this when wealth and politics are introduced into the community. So I'm going to quote directly from this article. In between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. is a small city called Columbia, originally designed in the late 1960s as a model city that would represent the idealized USA of racial and ethnic equality. It succumbed to the pressure of profit and greed within 10 years of it opening. Naturally, this meant that the demographics would be based more on wealth than anything else. My familiarity with it comes from the mall there. And more importantly, the numerous concerts I've watched or I've attended at the Merriweather Post Pavilion in the city. In addition, friends and I spent many Thursday evenings listening to free music at a local park there. After I moved out west in 1977, pressure from the real estate developers, right-wing culture warriors, and politicians representing them gave license to the county police to go after the crowds at these concerts. After one particularly violent police attack on the free concert in the mid-1980s, a friend who worked in the emergency room at the local hospital told me of the broken bones and blood inflicted by the police. Basically, you have a self-contained community that has given freedom to its police force to indiscriminately attack its citizens. So. What could be the problem there? (sighs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. I will say something, though. I, th- I feel like this happens all too frequently that you have like a goal and, and it's altruistic or whatever. And then they say, oh, well, it falls to capitalism. I don't I wonder how often that it's really an accident and how often it's that these big companies come in and pretend to have the same mindset, but actually have an agenda to begin with when they first start offering to help quote unquote, and then they know that eventually they can turn it into a capitalistic opportunity. And they also have the backing of the politicians, local Mm -hmm. or otherwise, that they know will also encourage the citizens who don't know anything any better to back this. And then before they know it, those citizens are pushed out of the community. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, um, probably close to 100% of the time, altruistic ideas end up being turned into capitalist money grabs. Well, what I'm saying is, like, I I wonder how often the case is that, because you have a person or a group of people that have a genuinely altruistic mindset and have a plan in place, and then people get involved that never did but pretended to because they knew they could eventually take over. And oh, yeah. get rid of all of that mindset. Now, some people do fall to greed. I, I, That's an obvious thing. That's the human nature, right? We have to fight that to some extent. But because we our, our, our nature is to take care of ourselves and our family and those that we love. And if we feel like that there's something we can do to do that, even if it maybe hurts this other person that we don't know, are we more geared towards taking care of ourselves and our loved ones? Yes. That's just, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. So I do think that that happens. I'm just wondering how often it's like there are people there that have the best of intentions and whether or not they fell doesn't matter because there were people that moved in and took over that never once for a single second were doing it for the right reasons. I think it happens quite frequently, honestly. I think there are a lot of good people out there who have ideas and ideals of like you know, better community, better lives and things like that. But again, as long as we have capitalism in place, it's gonna, uh, it's gonna find a way in. Um, yep. It's gonna find a way in. How am I making the money that I need? Yeah. Cause I always need more. I can never be satisfied with what I have. Truly. It's why I always ask for a raise. So, uh, no, you ask for a raise because inflation is a real thing. <laughs> yeah, true. And that. if you don't get a raise, then you're actually getting paid less every single year. Just FYI. Yeah, true that. With that out of the way, let's talk about John Bowie. But I just wanted to tell you guys about that so that you kind of had a better understanding of what this area is like. It's saturated with politicians and it's got wealthy neighborhoods. Like people have money here. So it basically swung in the completely opposite direction. Yeah. And they, yep. they they are little villages. Like most people walk around in these towns. There's not a lot of driving. Some You know, you can walk to your school. You can walk to your job. They're like laid out little villages. So let's talk about John Bowie. I can't tell you about John without telling you about Mickey, his identical twin brother. The two were thick as thieves. And when they graduated high school, both of them had a full scholarship had full scholarships for a college in North Dakota through their baseball, like playing baseball. They play baseball in North Dakota. (laughs) Right. Uh, Well, they both got scholarships for baseball, but I think it was Mickey who was going to do baseball and football. Oh, wow. At the college. So they were, they were very like athletic and um, very skilled in that. But what's funny is after their second year in North Dakota, both brothers dropped out and moved back home because it was too cold in North Dakota. <laughs> you think? It's not far away from Canada. I was like, that would be me. <laughs> that would be me. Oh, my God. I can't imagine trying to play football in North Dakota because that's when it's actually starting to get cold. Baseball's yeah, typically in the summer, at least, but still. Yeah, it's too cold. It, and it's funny, too, because like uh, when they were dropped off at the school by their parents, they they told their parents like, hey, we don't like it here. Like, it's not vibing with us. We don't want to stay. 
And their mother basically told them, well, you're here. You need to figure it out. And if you want to get back home, you're walking because I'm leaving without you. (laughs) You're going to stay. You need to see how it works out. They tried it for two years. Um, Turns out didn't like it didn't work for them. So they headed back home. It was a little bit warmer. I mean, two years is fair. I mean, that sounds like they gave it a real fair chance. Yeah. It wasn't like they were there for half a semester and left. It's longer than I was able to do. <laughs> so, good on them. Um, the boys came by their like sports skills naturally. Their father, Carl Bowie, was a star baseball player as well. And the Yankees had actually expressed interest in him at some point. Right on. So he was really talented. They came, you know, they came by it honestly. Their mother, Sandra, and Carl were actually divorced. The couple were only together for a few years, long enough to have three children together, Carlene, a daughter, and the twins, John and Mikey. Carlene was a daddy's girl, and when her father remarried, she went to live with them, leaving Sandra and the boys together in Columbia. In 1986, Sandra uh, married a man named Jim uh, Kaiser. Even though the brothers had dropped out of college, they did have plans for the future. I want to make that clear. They were making plans. They had jobs. Um, they were planning on marrying their girlfriends. Like they had trips planned. All of that. They weren't just dropping out. Yeah. Yeah. They, they had aspirations for the future. They were looking forward to their future. At around 6 a.m. on the morning of Friday, May 4th, 1990, the body of John Bowie was found by a woman jogging. He was hanging from the backstop of the Oakland Mills High School baseball field. This next part, it's hard to explain, but John was hanged. Not by a rope, but by a length of blue vinyl cable a quarter inch thick that was permanently clamped to the roof of the backstop. The cable pulled tight continued down the roof where a short end connected to the upper links by a thumb buckle, a turnbuckle, sorry, and was fashioned in a tight loop around John's neck. And don't worry if you don't fully understand like the cable setup, uh, we'll, we'll circle back around to it in a minute and I'll explain what it's there for and maybe you'll understand it a little bit better. But I want to talk about what happened after John was found first. Police and first responders showed up and a ladder was placed on the backstop where a plainclothes detective climbed up and attempted to remove John's body from the loop. He was unsuccessful, so they cut the cable, placed a rope around his torso, and lowered him to the ground. All of this was done in a bit of a hurry. It was a school day and all those that were gathered there were concerned that children would begin to show up and see the scene. which. That's valid, but can you not secure the area? Right. And this is a crime scene. You can delay opening the school. Like, it's not technically a crime. We'll get to it. Regardless, to make an assumption that it's not a crime scene, let's go that way. I mean, in general, when you first come upon something like that, I would think the first thing, secure the crime scene. Because mm-hmm. at this point, until it's been proved, until you have reason to believe it's otherwise, that should be the automatic assumption just in case it is a crime scene. Oh, I agree. I agree. And if you're worried about kids seeing it, then maybe have people a little bit further out making sure no kids come across it and tell the school not to open. Yes, I, I agree to all of that. But... That's not what happened. I can't speak to what might have been bungled in 
proceeding the way they did at the scene. I don't know what the protocol is in this case, but out the gate, the investigators had a preconceived idea of what happened to John. There, on the baseball field, a medical examiner and a, and a detective, Wendell Rudisil, nicknamed Bud, he ends up being the one who kind of leads this investigation, what little of it there is, made the determination right there that this was a suicide. No autopsy done, just bam, suicide. You know what that reminds me of? Did you ever watch Sleepy Hollow with Johnny Depp? No. Okay, so at the very beginning, you know, he's playing Ichabod Crane, and he's in a big city, and these people find a body in the water. And so they pull the body out of the water, and Johnny Depp's character is in front of the judge, like, like in the next scene, and he's like, or I guess it's a judge. And he's saying, I need to get the body so I can perform an autopsy and make sure I can determine cause of death. And the guy goes, when you find a body in the water upside down, then the cause of death is drowning. Case closed. And it was just like, he's, but I need to, to look because he could have been dead before he was dumped in the water. And he's like, no, that's not how it works. Yeah. That, that, yeah. That's exactly same thing. Um, <laughs> you didn't do an autopsy. No, that's a um, suicide. Definitely suicide. Okay. Oh, goodness. Now, we're going to go back to the cable, the cable that he was hung from. This cable contraption was in place for a reason. During field days, they would lower the cable and attach a tire to the end of it for kids to play on. Sometimes the baseball team would lower it uh, to pitch through as well. So they had like a tire on it. They pitched through the, the hole in it. Yeah, it makes sense. It was secured to the backstop with a combination lock so it wouldn't come down on its own and injure anyone. It used to hang loose from the backstop. But after parents complained, they secured the loose end to the backstop when not in use. This is important because the athletic director is the one who secured the combination lock to the backstop. Since the director could never remember the combination, there was a key slot in it as well. And the athletic director kept that key. Nobody else had a key to it. So out of curiosity, because you've just given me a lot of information. So was mm -hmm. it considered lowered or not when he was found? I'm assuming not, correct? It, it was not, but it was not secured. The lock was missing. Okay. The lo so he shouldn't have been able, nobody should have been able to get that cable and do what happened to John. Like, it should have been secured. And in fact, the athletic director had gone up just days before to check it to ensure that it was secured and there was no damage done to it because they were about to have another field day. So she was like, I just looked at this. I know it was secured. Mm -hmm. And then when they pulled John's body off, the lock was nowhere to be found. They searched like the surrounding area and the garbage cans around there and they couldn't find it. Did the director still have the key? Mm-hmm. Yep. At the same time, we, the the athletic director was there. Uh, she pointed out the duct tape that was around the cable. She had put duct tape around it so when kids were playing on it, they wouldn't scrape themselves. And some of the tape had been removed. And the officer on duty that looked at it saw that the adhesive was still sticky, so it had recently been removed. They searched, again, surrounding area, didn't find anything. Couldn't find any of the tape. 
just a little tidbit. If you're planning to commit suicide, you're not going to hide all of the evidence before you do so. Typically, I wouldn't think. You know, that's that is a fair assumption. I'm not going to cut the bolt, cut the lock off and then dispose of the lock and then come back. I'm not going to rip the duct tape off and then dispose of that in another location and then come back. Then that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. It came out later, uh, and I didn't actually put this in my notes, but when John's blood alcohol level was tested, uh, he had like a 0.22, which was intox. That's intox. At, at 0.10, you're legally unable to drive, you're intoxicated, whatever. And so a lot of people made the assumption that he was too intoxicated to have even climbed up there himself and and put himself in that position. Uh, again, that's speculation. Pretty high. Yeah. So during this time, like the same time that they're removing John's body from the backstop, 300 feet away at his home, Mickey Bowie was asleep in his room. So they're all really close. Like everything's real close together. Again, it's a village, blah, 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 blah. Sandra and Jim were at work at this time, and someone entered the home of John and Mickey Bowie. Mickey heard footsteps on the stairs that woke him. The footsteps went into John's room, but shortly after entering the room, the home phone rang, and the footsteps hurried down the stairs and out of the house. When Mickey answered the phone, it was his mother, Sandra, who was asking if John had made it home. John worked with Sandra, and she was worried because he hadn't made it in yet. And there is a reason why she should be concerned that he's late, and we'll get to it in a minute. But Mickey told his mother that he just heard John leave and that he should be there in a few minutes, which we know it's, it wasn't John that entered the house because he was currently, his body was being pulled off of the backstop. John had a house key that he kept uh, separate from like his car keys and they were never able to locate his house key when they found him. So that house key was missing. Uh, the assumption is that somebody broke into their house that morning or got in with the key and was looking for something in John's room. Which means it would need to be somebody who at least somewhat knew him because they'd have to know where he lived. You can't just have the key and then know where, which house it goes to. Yeah. Before we go any further, we need to rewind a bit. Back to Friday, January 5th, 1990. At 11.39 p.m., a night clerk at a Red Roof Inn called the local police department to report a party going on in one of the rooms. Here's the thing. Several officers were actually eating at a restaurant nearby, and first two of them quickly responded to it. They're like, okay, we'll go. By the end of what is about to occur, all of them showed up, including uh, several officers from a barracks over a mile away. There were over a dozen police officers that showed up to this for a noise complaint, might I remind you. Okay. <laughs> That's so stupid. In the room where the party was going on, there were 15 young adults, two of which were John and Mickey Bowie. At this time, they were actually on winter break from college. They had not yet moved back. So they were, you know, having a good time. There were uh, several cases of beer. And somebody at some point had brought some weed, a pipe to smoke weed or whatever. Which is what every kid in their late teens does. 
early 20s, late teens. Like, you know, party, you're going to have beer, shots, probably weed, like chill out. Among the partiers was Jeff Phipps, who was the only one who was 21. He had actually been the one who rented the motel room. And Chong Ko, a friend of the Bowie brothers, during the party, Jeff had hit on another girl right in front of his girlfriend, and she fled into the bathroom crying with some other girls. Not surprising. Yeah. Especially if there was drinking involved, too. Probably not helping. Yeah. Well, Jeff, th- not surprised that she ran away. Let's clarify. I, th- there ain't any excuse for a guy to do that, but no. I don't blame the girl at all. Same. Jeff actually ended up leaving after this. So this left 14 people in the room, eight girls and six guys. Mickey made his way into the bathroom to see if he could help in any way. Uh, but he quickly decided that he couldn't and turned to re-enter the room, which like say so. <laughs> sounds like Paul. <laughs> yes. he'd do that. Oh my gosh, she's so upset. Oh no, you're really crying. And yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go get you something and I'll be back later. <laughs> yeah. Well when he when he did when he turned back to go back into the room from the bathroom, he heard somebody shout cops. Two officers had entered the room, Officer Ricky Johnson and Victor Ramir, Rymer, Rymer, I think it's Rymer. I actually listened to the audible of this too, so I should remember, but whatever. He's a dirtbag. Anyway, so fuck saying his name right. They told the group to show their IDs and ask for the person who rented the room to stand up. But when the kids told the officers the person who had rented the room had left, that was Jeff Phibbs, the officers grew angry. They seemed to, like, not believe them that this dude had left. That's so weird. Did you say earlier who called for the noise complaint? It was actually, it was the clerk who worked at the front desk at the, at the, what was it, Red Roof? Yeah. So, like, somebody that was in a room next to this group of kids partying had called the front desk. Well, the front desk was the only one there, so she couldn't, like, or they, I don't know if it's a woman or not. They couldn't leave and go, like, tell them to, like, quiet down. So she called the local police. Oh, okay. And, in fact, the dispatcher that she called was like, can you give me, like, more information on this? I really don't want to send out officers uh, if I can help it. Um, And she was like, I'm making a noise complaint. You know, just whatever. Send somebody out. I mean, but did they even try to call the room? Mm -mm. It's just, it just strikes me as very, that escalated really quickly. All things considered. Yeah. Like I've had people stomping around up above me and making a whole lot of noise to the extent I can't, I can barely sleep when I stay at a hotel, but I've never even called the front desk for a noise complaint. But if I did, I would expect them to call the room and say, Hey, there are other people around you. Maybe be mindful of that. Yeah. Well, and this is a motel. It's not, let's clarify that this is a motel, not a hotel. Well, I mean, but still, I don't know. It just seems like a a rather large escalation for a noise complaint. Like, just call the room at least first and say, hey, could you guys cut it out? If you think that's an escalation. uh, Oh, I I can imagine. Hang on on to your butts. Uh, So the officers had grown angry, you know, not believing them that the person who ran it had left. Uh, So they asked everyone to produce their IDs. And they gave some kind of like speech on like underage drinking, like it's against the law, blah, 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 whatever. 
well, some of the people who were attending this party didn't have IDs because, duh, not everybody has an ID, whatever. So the officers told these these kids, uh, if you don't have an ID, we're going to arrest you. Like, we're going to take you to jail for the weekend because the commissioner is not in office, so we can't file paperwork. You're going to go to jail if you don't have an ID, which out the gate, they're, they can't do. And John knew, John Bowie knew that the officers couldn't do that. And he actually ends up speaking up in the middle of this and is like, you, you can't actually do that. Like, you can't take us to jail because we don't have IDs. So the account of what happens next was pieced together by David Parrish. He spoke with all the kids at the party that night and got their statements on what took place. I only point this out because it isn't the official account of what took place that night. There isn't like a official account that I can even read from. So just be aware that this is going to be one-sided. It is biased because it, but it is based on the statements given by the kids who were at this motel. And I keep saying kids, they're all adults, but they're kids. I mean, 1920, that's a kid. Yeah. John Bowie spoke up saying, yeah, right. You can't do that just because we don't have IDs. Officer Johnson turned to him and said, shut the fuck up. Well, that's not very professional. Yeah. John said, you can't do that. And Officer Johnson asked John if he had a problem. John responded, hey, no problem, no problem. Like with his hands raised, like he's trying to placate this officer, trying to like de-escalate the situation because he felt something was about to happen. Johnson said he wanted to speak with John outside. Chong Ko snickered at this interaction and Officer Ramir, Reimer said, so you're a smart ass, stand up. At the same time, John was standing to make his way outside with Officer Johnson. Johnson shoved him back down. Reimer, Ramir, whatever, fuck this dude, frisked Chong and found an unopened bottle of grain alcohol. Officer Johnson motioned for John to stand again and follow him outside. Johnson grabbed John's sleeve in the doorway and jerked him outside. This feels like excessive use of force, but okay. Yeah, and it's about to get worse. This this kind of sets like Mickey off. He knew John could take care of himself, but Officer Johnson had put his hands on John twice now. And Mickey shot up and different accounts say different things, but it seems like Mickey either grabbed Officer Johnson's arm or put his hand on his arm to get his attention. I'm not sure which is right. In any case, Officer Johnson glared at Mickey, and Mickey said to John, "No, don't go outside with him." Yeah, don't, don't you don't, don't, don't get separated from the group. Don't, don't give yeah. him the ability to do anything without witnesses. Mm-mm. Yeah, and that's that's what was they were trying to do. Johnson looked down at Mickey's hand on his arm and said, "Quote: Get your hand the fuck off my arm! Don't you know you can't touch a police officer?" Johnson then jabbed his nightstick at Mickey's hand and he pulled away. Mickey then asked where they were taking John. Quote, where are you taking him outside where you can hit him and nobody can see? See, he's aware of this situation. Officer Johnson responded that nobody was getting hit. They were going outside so John could calm down. Which John isn't like excited at this point. Like these officers are obviously upset for whatever reason. 
And this is where it escalates. Officer uh, Ramirez grabbed Mickey around the throat with his nightstick and began choking him and lifting him off the ground. He was choking him so hard that that Mickey's feet left the ground. Officer Johnson then jumped forward and swung his nightstick at Mickey, hitting him in the eye. So he's getting choked by one officer. The other one hits him with his nightstick. John was standing in the doorway, half in and half out of the room when the struggle began. Mickey and Officer Ramir Reimer stumbled out of the door and fell onto the sidewalk, which caused Reimer to release his hold and the night around the nightstick, and Mickey's neck was free at this point. Reimer jumped up and straddled Mickey around the stomach and punched him in the eye. He then shouted that Mickey was under arrest, and at this point. Mickey went limp, complying. Reimer flipped him onto his stomach and handcuffed him, handcuffed his hands behind his back. He then proceeded to hit Mickey over and over again. Now, I do want to point out that Chong did say that Mickey was egging the officer on during this, saying things like, quote, you're real tough beating up a kid in handcuffs. Still, this is not acceptable behavior from a police officer. It doesn't matter what you say to a police officer. There's no reason. That's not acceptable behavior for any adult against a young human. It doesn't matter whether what kind of a person they are, they are what kind of a situation they're in, let alone a person who should be held to a higher standard because they are going to be specifically in situations that are difficult to deal with Mm -hmm. and when you're having to deal with people that are going to be difficult. So in no way, shape, or form do you ever, I don't care who you are, have the justification to be physically attacking another human being regardless of what's coming out of their mouth. Yeah, no. It's a verbal assault being countered with a physical assault, and there is no justification for that. And you have like, Whatsoever. he's got the power in this situation. The police officer has the power. He's in also situation. handcuffed. Yeah. And he's, handcuffed. he's subdued at this point. There is nothing he can do. He can say whatever the hell he wants to. There mm-hmm. is no need whatsoever to be physical with this person. Yeah. Agree. During this time, other officers began showing up. And that's what I was saying. Like, you know, a dozen officers showed up. And John was now on the ground as well, too. The newly arrived police officer stood in the doorway to the motel room with their backs to the group inside, blocking the group's view to the scene playing out with the Bowie brothers. So they knew what they were doing. They were trying to hide it from any witnesses. Uh, At one point, Officer Johnson struck John in the mouth with his nightstick. So the... uh, what ends up happening is like the entire inside of John's mouth is just shredded from this. Another officer swung his nightstick at Chong in the motel room and jammed it into Chong's mouth, telling him to shut up because Chong had said, did you see that to somebody else that was there? Like just expressing, Oh my God, I can't believe like this is happening. Officer Reimer went over to Mickey at one point And he ground his foot into the side of Mickey's face like he was putting out a cigarette, which caused like road rash on his face. The boys were beaten pretty severely. We'll just put it that way. All the way up to them getting secured into a police vehicle, they were severely beaten. They put the brothers in the back of the police car and searched the motel room. During the search, they found the pipe 
for the weed smoking. And uh, I can for the weeds to smoke of the weed. <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that. <laughs> and attempted to see who it belonged to. No one spoke up at the time, but when the cops started letting people leave, they did not charge anyone. They just let them leave because they couldn't charge them. One girl was singled out by the cops and she told them that the pipe belonged to Chong. Reimer took Chong into the bathroom and strip searched him alone then arrested him without telling him what he was being arrested for. First off, that's sexual assault. Mm-hmm. There's no way around that was sexual assault. There's no reason for that. Well, there's no reason for any of this, to be perfectly frank. No, there's not. The officers took John, Mickey, and Chong to the station and fingerprinted them, telling them they were under arrest for drug paraphernalia. Now... Back at home, Sandra got... Meanwhile, this is all based on one girl's statement against one other member of the three that are now mm-hmm. being fingerprinted. Well, and here's the thing. That's what uh, Reimer told the group that they were being charged with, but that's not what they end up telling uh, their mother. So back at home, Sandra gets a call from Jeff Phipps' mom saying, hey, like, don't be upset. But I just heard that the boys have been arrested for assault and battery of a police officer. This anyone <laughs> that saw the boys compared to the police officers know exactly what happened. Well, yes, one hundred percent agree. But there's a problem with this. There was like some confusion during this time. An officer ended up calling Sandra shortly after she got off the phone with Jeff's mom. And told her that the brothers had been arrested for assaulting an officer. She spoke briefly with one of the boys, I think it was Mickey, who tried to tell her they had beat had been beaten up by the police. But Ramir got back on the phone and assured her they were unharmed. There was not a scratch on them and told her they would have to stay in jail overnight. So she couldn't come and get them. He then told her not to come and pick him up and make them walk home. And then he turned around and he went back into the cell with the boys and told them that their mother said they could walk home. So just right out the gate, he's he's going ahead and he's like trying to fuck with other people's relationships, like making the boys isolate. believe that their mom doesn't. Yeah, isolate them. Well, when the two finally got home the following day, it was clear they had been severely beaten. After all of this, the brothers decided to file a complaint file complaints against the officers that assaulted them. Which, yeah, they ended up having to go to the hospital, get stitches, get treated. Like, they were severely beaten. hmm So, Reverend Dr. John Wright was the head of the local chapter of the NAACP at the time. The NAACP is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. It's a civil rights organization in the United States formed in 1909 as an interracial endeavor to advance justice for African-Americans by a group including W.E.B. DuBose, Mary White Overington, uh, Moorfield Story, and Ida B. Wells. John ended up writing to Wright explaining what happened And even though John and Mickey were white, Reverend John Wright told him that the NAACP were interested in hearing their story. 
Wright ended up recommending a, an attorney for the boys, Joe Glasgow, Glasgow, to file the compa- complaints through. So basically, he heard this and he was like, uh, this is fucked up. Like, I know you guys aren't black or anything like that, but let me do what I can to, to help you. Because at the same time, like that organization is really good about filing complaints against like police officers as well. So they're familiar with the the whole situation. Well, and I think, too, they obviously do a lot of their work pro bono so that they probably knew that these kids didn't have much of a chance outside of them stepping in. Yeah. Well, yeah. And to top it off, like, you know, it, it goes without us saying, but we're going to say it anyways. But police brutality affects majority of people of color. So they're familiar with this process. They're familiar with the tactics and things like that that police will do in order to uh, assuage assuage responsibility for their actions. So, and it all honestly, it probably helps their cases too because they can say, "Look, it's not just yeah in our situation. They're doing it at any." opportunity that they feel like they can get away with it yeah exactly so against a child or a young adult uh-huh why you know anybody that they feel like they have more power than so with the help of the attorney uh the brothers filed their complaints as well as assault charges against the officers Internal affairs got involved and began investigating the claims against the officers they also involved the FBI in the investigation Thankfully, they had taken photos of their injuries, and these were turned over to the FBI for them to do their investigation. So let's review for a minute. We have 12 witnesses to the assault. We have photo evidence and multiple agencies investigating the case. This was what year? 1990. Okay, so it's also, I mean, the camera quality would have been pretty good. You could have easily seen what exactly they were taking pictures of yeah and i would think at that point calls made to and from the police station would also be recorded Mm -hmm. yep you would think so so it's going to come as a bit of a shock that the investigation turned up no wrongdoing on the part of the officers no it's not it's not a shock at all no and this this came from the fbi In fact, they told Sandra when they broke the news to her that police officers had bad days, too. Uh, No. Yeah, no. Sorry, that's not how that works. Get all the way fucked. When I have a bad day, I call out sick and I stay at home and barely leave my bed and watch TV. If their definition of having a bad day is brutally assaulting two young adults. Three. For no reason. Or three, but mostly two. I mean, the, the two boys got the bare brunt of it i think but i mean like physically like having the bruises and everything that's easily proven and seen is more what i was referring to but mm-hmm. they're having a bad day so this is the result of that last time i checked if i have a bad day and that's how i respond to somebody who smarts off at me i'm going to get assault charges yeah so if your job is to deal with these situations specifically and you're supposedly trained to deal with these situations, why on earth would you be treated nicer than me, who isn't, as just a regular Joe Schmo walking down the street and gets pissed off at somebody mouthing off to me? That's such a good question. 
I have that question all the time about instances like this. Uh, but it's because police officers believe not all of them, obviously, but a good portion of them believe that they are outside of the repercussions of the law because they're supposed to enforce it. Exactly. They're supposed to enforce the law, not what they want mm-hmm. and what they think is justice. Because last time I last time I checked, they're not responsible for the justice part of it either. That's for a different type of party. Mm-hmm. So they're supposed to subdue and arrest and then let the other sides take care of the rest of it. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's not what happened. Sounded like a bunch of bullies. Now, during this time, internal investigations was still doing an investigations into these claims against the police officers. So that is still ongoing. The FBI didn't find any wrongdoing, blah, 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 blah. So, but at the same time of all of this, Chong is also being charged with possession of drug paraphernalia. The mon- But he was smart, okay? Chong went the Monday after the motel incident, and he went and got a drug test done from a doctor. Smart. And it showed up negative for all and any kind of drugs, which he knew it would. And he he submitted this to the court and to the police officers saying, hey, I told you it's not mine. Like, wouldn't I have something in my system if it was mine? Like, this makes no sense. What's sketchy, though, is that... Not to mention, they also didn't find it on him. No, they found it in between a mattress and the motel room. So, again, literally no proof. Yeah, no proof. During all this, Reimer, he is constantly calling Chong. Like, constantly. And he's basically saying, like, hey, I can probably get these charges dropped. And Chong is like, you know, get fucked all the way off. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, at one point, he was just tired of it. And he went to a meeting with the state's attorney and Officer Reimer. And to be clear, Chong's first language is not English. And he didn't understand it 100%. So he didn't fully understand what was being discussed during this meeting. But he did say that at some stuff. At some point, they kept saying things like, now you do your part, Chong. Like insinuating that he was going to be on their side whenever this thing went to court, which is just taking advantage of somebody who is not in a position to be able to know what's going on, to fully interpret what is happening. It's all real shady. Which is one reason why now, if a person is ever brought into any building of any kind along those lines, they are entitled, it is their right to have an interpreter. And request one. Yeah. Keep that in mind. And always have a lawyer. I know that that's spoken from a place of privilege and not everybody can obtain a lawyer, but you can get a public defender for a lot of this stuff. So always have a lawyer if you can. Now, one night in March following this motel incident, Chong was throwing a party at his sister's house. Like his sister went out of town and he was like, hey, can I throw a party at your house? And she's like, yeah, do whatever. Which awesome sister. But there's like 30 people at this party. And among them is uh, John and Mikey. Mickey. Yeah, sorry. No, it's Mickey because they also call him Mick for short. They'll call him Mick. So sorry if I said that wrong. So John and uh, Mick Bowie are at this party. And in the middle of the party, Reimer shows up and he knocks on the front door and Chong is like fucking over this dude. 
he answers the door and he steps outside and closes the door behind him. And Reimer says, hey, you need to disperse this party, like break it up, send people home. And he goes, yeah, I'll do it as soon as you leave. You know, I'm not letting you in this house. You're not welcome in this house. You need to leave and I'll have everybody leave, like go after. Reimer was like, okay, well, are the Bowie brothers inside? And Chong Chong wouldn't answer him. He basically said, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but I'm not letting you in here. Like he had had enough. And it didn't stop there. Reimer was basically stalking Chong during all of this. I mean, that's stalking. Constantly calling him, showing up at his party. This is harassment. So even though the FBI found uh, no fault on the police, there were still charges against the brothers. And when they went to court to deal with them, a, a couple of interesting things happened. First, an internal uh, affairs officer approached John asking him if he was sure that an officer Wright had also been involved in the assault against him. And when I spoke about the assault, I mostly talked about Johnson, Officer Johnson and Officer Ramirez. But at one point, there was an Officer Wright that was there as well, and he struck John with his nightstick. John was sure that it was Officer Wright because in the middle of him being forced down on the ground, John looked up and said, hey, don't I know you to Officer Wright? Because uh, he had seen him out and about at some like a party or something like that. And John had specifically said that because he was hoping, since this officer was a familiar face, that it wouldn't escalate to the point that it did. And that it would hopefully hold these officers accountable since he knew who they were. Which didn't, you know, didn't happen. But basically, the um, internal affairs officer was like, are you sure? And John felt like the IA officer was trying to get him to recant that uh, Officer Wright was there for some reason. Like, they didn't want to bring him up on an investigation. Not sure why. Uh, But specifically that one person. Maybe because that was the one person that he was very, very aware of who he was. And that he actually did kind of... It sounds like he almost made a plea to him to try to get him to stop. So I wonder if maybe that guy took offense at it or they were worried he might turn. I don't know. But the IA officers didn't want to bring charges up against Wright for whatever reason. And Sandra, you know, told John, like, maybe you should do it. It seemed like they're actually looking into this. And if Wright wasn't like fully involved in it, you know, let that one go. Because at the end of the day, we're concerned with Reimer and Johnson. Saying nothing and allowing it to happen right in front of you is just as bad as being the person doing it. So, no. He did assault John. Like, he hit him. Wright hit him. Not as much. Not, But not as much. The distinction doesn't fucking matter. He assaulted a citizen for no (laughs) reason. And um, John didn't like this. He was like, no, I know what I saw. And if I, if I, something about this feels weird. And if I go back on saying that, if I say that he wasn't there, I was mistaken. What else will they say that I was mistaken about? You know, so he wasn't, he wasn't willing to like roll back on that specific statement. The other interesting thing that happened wasn't actually, it's not interesting. It was concerning. While the group, which included a lot of the kids that were present at the motel that night, waited on another case to finish in the courtroom, Reimer was present and basically taunting and terrifying the kids by pacing next to them in the courtroom and slapping their hands and things like that. So Sandra 
frustrated with this, got up and went and talked to the attorney and was like, somebody's got to do something about him because he's terrifying the kids, blah, 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 all that other stuff. So Sergeant Graham goes in, grabs Reimer and speaks with him. A few minutes later, when Reimer comes back in, instead of him pacing next to the kids, he gets right behind Sandra against the wall and starts jangling his keys right behind her. Well, Sandra's not fucking putting up with this. So she stands up and she goes and stands right next to him. Like, you're not going to taunt me. You're not going to scare me. I'm just going to stand right next to you. You can fuck all the way off. Now, good for her. Like, fucking love it. Yeah. The bad, the bad part about this whole like day in court and things like that was when they actually got up to speak with the judge about the charges and things like that. The um, district attorney and the judge were not prepared to have the amount of people there to do witness statements that ended up showing up. So they ended up actually postponing this trial for a later date. So nothing was taken care of. And John and Mix attorney was like hey we want to proceed like right now because there are concerns of safety and repercussions for these kids and the judge was like and eh, they'll be fine i'm not ready to hear all of this today so later date gavel meanwhile i'm assuming this police officer is also still on active duty oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah so, because they're not currently under investigation, the FBI found nothing. Yeah. Well, they're they're under investigation from IA, Internal Affairs. See, that's what I don't understand. If they're on, if they actually are still under investigation, how are they still on active duty? I don't know. There's there's no way that that should be allowed. No, just in general, because that means there's a question there on whether you're being lawful in when you're exercising your duty or working. If that's a question right now, why am I going to let you continue to work? That's like saying somebody who works in the financial industry is under investigation for fraud, but we're going to let you keep working and doing everything that you were doing before because we haven't proven that you committed fraud. Are we going to give you additional opportunities to continue to do it? No. Well, Sam, that's people's money and that's serious. We can't lose money. Capitalism, baby. But when it involves Not people's fair. lives, fuck them. You know, who cares? So, yeah, all of that, all of that's going on. Um, so while they wait for this trial to take place, Reimer kind of doubles down and he began stalking John. What is this dude's fucking problem? He's obsessed. I, I, I don't think like he has nothing better to do with his life. Yeah, I don't fucking know. Um, Mick was also being stalked, but didn't know by who. At one point, he he used to go to like the daycare where Sandra worked late at night, and he would clean the daycare for them for like you know extra money or whatever. And at one point, he looked out and he saw two giant shadows next to the uh, dumpster. And from then on, he like he wouldn't take the trash out when he was there by himself. And I blame him. People were checking in on John from one place to the other to ensure he got where he needed to be safely because. Reimer was like just showing up in different places. Like he he chased him off the road one day. And then about four months after the motel incident happened, John wakes woke his mother up in the middle of the night. It was like 2 a.m. and was like, you know, mom, Reimer's in the backyard. Like he's standing in our backyard. And when she looked, 
he wasn't there. And the same thing happened the next night. And he woke his mom up and she looked again. Nobody was there. Well, this kept happening and all the way leading up to John's death. And another morning, John, instead of waking Sandra up, woke Mick up. And Mick was like, nobody's outside. Reimer's not in the backyard. It's your imagination. You're seeing shit, blah, 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 blah. Well, there was also the screen on John's window to his room had been cut. Somebody was back there. And I'm, we don't know 100%, but I'm pretty sure we know who it was. So this dude is so fucking annoying. Now, he's insane. I looked up if a police officer can work during an active investigation on them. And it says that they can under certain circumstances. So unless like the state revokes their ability to be employed, then they're able to continue working while the investigation is taking place. At least that's what I found. So just a little tidbit. Okay. So like just because they can doesn't mean they should. Yeah. <laughs> that just makes no sense to me whatsoever. So if the state bureaus are doing an investigation into them, they they can be taken off. IA does it. They don't have to be taken off. FBI does it. Since it's federal, it's not state. They don't have to be taken off. It's all bullshit. In the end, it's all bullshit. So all of this harassment and stalking took place all the way up to until John was found dead. It's important to note that when John was found dead, they were actually about to go back to court on this case. I was just about to ask when their court day was. So the thought is that something happened to him because of that. Again, that's speculation. We don't know. There isn't a lot on the investigation into John's death since they did rule it a suicide at the scene. (laughs) I said, insert eye roll. What... I can tell you is that after friends and family pushed, they eventually changed the manner of death from suicide to, quote, unattended, which is still bullshit. Unless it's marked as a homicide or as a suspicious death, uh, no investigation is going to be done on it. Unattended just means they died and nobody was there to see. And nobody can, can figure out how. Yeah. So, bunch of bullshit. In July of that year, following John's death, Jeff Phibbs was called to court to testify about the way the Bowie brothers were treated by the arresting officers. This was for the grand jury review on the complaints submitted by the brothers. So if you're not aware, a grand jury is convened to take in any evidence that is available to see if they can proceed with a court case or a trial. So Jeff was supposed to go and give his statement and they would take that into account on whether or not a trial would proceed. However, things didn't go as planned for Jeff. Jeff had gone to sit on a bench looking at the backstop after a vigil when he was abducted by two men. He was dragged by the neck for nearly a mile along a bike path and then dumped unconscious in a culvert the day before he was supposed to give his statement. He said he was forced along the bike path by at least two silent men whose faces he could not see because they were choking him with a rope or wire, according to the police. Sound familiar? This would definitely lead credibility to John's death being intentional. Well, there's a problem with this. 
Phipps told police that he lost consciousness when he was dumped in the woods near Good Lion Road and then came to around 3 a.m. He went to the nearby home of a friend and called police who took him to Howard County General Hospital where he was treated for a bruised windpipe and lacerations on his neck, his back and neck. So there's evidence of this. You can see bruising. He, there is a hospital report of it. There is a police report of it. Okay. <sighs> Jeff eventually recanted his statement that two men assaulted him. I knew that was coming. He was charged and put on probation for lying to police officers about this. It was said that he did this to avoid testifying in the case against the police. So surmise what you will from that. Again, I, ha- I just have to say there is evidence that he was assaulted. And also, it's very rare from what I've understood in past cases that police will actually go after somebody who fa- files a false report with any real, like, they might find them. But to go after them with an actual charge like that, I feel is pretty rare because usually you're like, if you do this again, we're going to you're going to face charges if it's somebody who's a habitual person to do this. Mm -hmm. So for them to then follow it up and double down and charge him with it and go after him, to me, is suspicious, too. Oh, I agree. He only got probation. And in the book, there was a lot regardless of the charge. Yeah. Well, in the book, David had like some issues with this because he David Parrish was actually there while all of this was unfolding. He was friends with Sandra. So he was constantly talking to Sandra. He inserted himself into this investigation. Let's be real. But when Jeff recanted on this statement, David was pretty pissed and he went out and he actually found evidence that what had taken place to Jeff actually happened, but it wasn't anything that could be used. So just like keep that in mind. So yeah, Jeff can't be counted on for a statement in this. Pretty much the entire thing falls apart. Eventually, the charges against Mick were postponed. And I couldn't see what actually happened. I think that they were dismissed outright. If not, he he may have been charged and put on like probation. But the complaints against the officers ended up being unfounded, blah, 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 blah. And here we are. John's death is still considered a unattended death with no investigation done, uh, which is basically saying they think it's suicide and they're just not putting it on paper for the family's, I don't know, benefit. So there you go. That's the death of John Bowie. Well, I don't like that, but that's that's what happens with these cases. Um, I mean, good job covering the case. I will say if you or somebody that you know are one of those people that say not all cops, just like you say, not all men when it comes to rape and sexual assault. Need I remind you that it's enough? Mm hmm. Because one in a group of 20 that does it means that all of the ones that are around them on a regular basis also know that it's happening and are doing nothing. So if you are one of those that says not all, you're part of the problem. One is too many. I don't care if it's one in this entire nation. And that's not the case. It is entirely too many, no matter how many it is. So be a part of the solution. Acknowledge the fact that there's a problem and do better. Yeah. Be better. And stop, let's stop, how about we, how about we stop doubting the victims 
and start listening and trying to make a difference. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, you know, since 1990, we have all gotten like collectively better at recognizing that this is an issue. The problem is that even though we recognize that it's an issue, there isn't a lot of stuff that we have been able to achieve in correcting this issue. So I think, you know, just in my case, from my point of view, talking about instances of police brutality such as this uh, on this podcast gives us kind of a voice to what these issues and concerns really are. So that's kind of why I ended up covering, even though I didn't want to, because in the beginning, I didn't want to do it because David, David Parrish is a little kooky. Like, go read this book if you want. But like at at one point, he his mom is kind of like a um, a psychic, and he ends up calling his mom a few times throughout this story, basically trying to get her advice. And she does like tell him things that she sees, which do help lead to some kind of like investigation stuff. But no, nothing really turns up of it. It was just like an interesting take from somebody who was directly involved in the entire situation. But what are your thoughts? Like, what do you think happened? <laughs> Kelsey's eyes. I think it's fairly evident what happened and was covered up. That's conjecture on my part, and that's my theory. But that this was a situation where you have somebody who's obviously gone rogue and is uncontrollable by their department, whether that's because they can't control him or whether it's because they don't care to. Either way, he's not being controlled. And he's in a position of power that he should not be in. And rather than accept any type of liability whatsoever on their part or responsibility for that matter, it's much better to just cover it up, get everybody to shut up and let's just stop talking about it. I would agree. And we lost a life that was unnecessary. Oh, yeah. And we could have lost more. Like Jeff could have easily been killed if, you know, if that situation had actually been true. Jeff could have easily been killed. I mean, Mick could have been killed that night, the way that they were choking him with a nightstick. I mean, if they were picking him off of the ground, that's a really good way to break somebody's neck. Oh, yeah, I agree. So there's obviously an excessive use of force. And if it's not put in check, it's only going to escalate further and further. And that's been proven time and time again. And just just so I do make sure I say this, uh, because I didn't put it in my notes, but Reimer did have an alibi for the night that John died. He was supposedly with a female. Uh, I don't know. He had spent the night with her. And during the time, which, okay, whatever. I I can say say that any night of the week. Like, what are you going to do to prove it? And then at the same time that somebody was breaking into the Bowie home on the morning that John was discovered, Reimer was actually on the phone, on his landline phone at his house with his lawyer. Well, that's an interesting conversation i know the court case was coming up but yeah i, I never said that it was necessarily him oh, i, I just said we all know we all know what happened like but i do i do I, have to put I mean, that in we, there. we have a we all have a theory quote unquote about what happened here one way or another this was done to him i don't believe for a second that he committed suicide no and it was covered up and it wouldn't have been covered up if it didn't involve certain people so yeah well, and here, here's the boys. Again, all theories, conjecture, blah, blah, blah. Look at them. Aren't they cute? Oh, my gosh. Those haircuts were so popular then. <laughs> <laughs> those little boys. Um, but yet, looking at the uh, backstop and like. God bless their mom. 
I just don't see how it would have been possible mm-hmm. for him to get himself in that situation. And then also kind of the way he was discovered, his hand was one of his arms was up above him, grabbing onto one of the links above his head as if he was trying to take the pressure off of his neck. Actually, my devil's advocate. It happens a lot that when people do complete suicide, that they regret the decision. And if they don't pass immediately, they do sometimes struggle. Unfortunately, that's the true truth of the matter. But yeah, I don't. Yeah. And then this is the backstop that we talked about. This is where he was found. Okay, that's what I thought you were talking about. And then that cord that's there, that is uh, that was the cable. Yeah, I just don't see him doing it to himself. And especially if he was intoxicated, how do you... Cl- I mean, crazier things have happened, but how do you climb up yeah, there? Yeah, I looked it up. Um, and that at that level of intoxication, it's on the high level of confusion and possibly on the low end, uh, end of stupor. So it would it would be challenging at best for him to go through all of that and arrange it mm-hmm. with no mistakes, I guess. Yeah. Well, and then to hide the lock. But why would you go to all of that effort, too? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of other ways that would be less public mm-hmm. and probably a little easier if you're, especially if you're intoxicated. I don't feel like you're going to be making things super complicated because doing math is pretty hard yeah. when you've been drinking. So I can't imagine that would be the automatic thing. I mean, I, I get it. He was a baseball player, and I, that's probably the whole baseball connection but i don't know i just feel like that's it doesn't make sense plus he didn't sound like he was in any way shape or form at a mental level of anybody suspecting that no and then so that's very random too and in a lot of like the publications after his death um they reported on that he was depressed that him and his girlfriend had had a fight the night before and he was depressed and you know like doing what police departments and the media typically do trying to like move the narrative in a direction that they want. But the problem with that situation is that John did not break up with his girlfriend, did not have a fight before the night before. That was Mick. Mick and his girlfriend had a fight. Oh, so they got the twins mixed up. Broke. Yes. And he wasn't depressed. He had plans. He had a trip planned. He, you know, his future looked up. He, there was no reason for him to do this and not in such a public setting either. If you ask me and nobody has, but I'm going to give my opinion anyways. Oh, I assumed this is a statement. You know, it would be one thing if, if he quote unquote died uh, from suicide alone in his home, but to do it, to have it displayed so publicly with so many people involved in what had occurred previous to this is a statement. And all those witnesses. Yeah, full stop. So it comes as no surprise that some of them might have been afraid to make statements to testify or any of that stuff. Again, speculation, allegedly, don't sue us. I'm not saying blah, blah, blah. anybody. We don't. Neither one of us have anything. So did anything wrong. What I'm saying is it would make sense to me that a public display as threatening as this would cause people to not want to come forward, not continue in the process of charging officers in their assault. That's all I'm saying. So it would make sense. I don't, I don't for a second believe that he, he died from suicide. Uh, it's just full stop. Nope. Just doesn't make sense. So 
anyways, that that's the death of John Bowie. Well, that was awful, but Thanks. thank you for telling the story. Oh, you're welcome. I don't think it's very covered because I tried to look him up to see if I could find a picture of him and there's nothing. Mm -mm. Here is a picture of him from two weeks before he died. This is sad. Um, This is why I don't cover crime that much. (laughs) Well, that's fair. I mean, you don't cover crime, but then even when you do, you you cover cases where there's not a real um, buttoned up ending too. So it kind of, it still leaves that irritated feeling at the end of the case. You're still irritated about the whole situation. I know. I'm going back to pirates now. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Go ahead. Um, We're actually recording this far in advance. So it's not even Christmas yet for all of you that will be listening to this, I guess, in the new year. It's very December. I think we we figured it out. So in that situation, we have all of the things that we normally cover about the 100th episode, all of that good stuff. So we'll transition into that. For my part, there weren't any new written reviews, so I don't have any shout outs, but please, by all means, write a written review so I can give you a shout out at some point, please. Mm -hmm. And thank you. Until next time, we love you. We mean it. Okay, bye. The Reaper.